We're now in week three of our Jonah series. And so let me catch us up really quickly. Jonah is this Israeli prophet of God who lived and ministered about 2,700 years ago. And God comes to Jonah and he tells him to go and preach to the biggest, baddest, most violent people on the planet at the time, the Ninevites. I mean, their bloodthirst was legendary. And Jonah hears this call from God and he says, um, God, thanks, but no thanks, uh, not, not going there. But I think Jonah says no for different reasons than most of us would say no. I don't think Jonah was necessarily scared. I think the text shows that Jonah had become self-righteous. And he had, he had really begun to hate the Ninevites in his heart. He really despised that people group. He didn't want to go preach to the Ninevites because he was afraid that God might have mercy on them and save them. Jonah wanted these people to suffer. He wanted them to die and rot in hell forever. And so we have this religious prophet of God who is hiding in his heart the idols of self-righteousness and hatred. And so he runs from God. He gets on a boat. And so if you picture Nineveh in the east, Jonah gets on a boat and he heads due west to Tarshish about 3,000 miles away. And so Jonah doesn't just run like a little bit. He runs as fast and as far as he can. And as he's running from God, God in his mercy sends a storm to get Jonah's attention. And yet Jonah ignores God in the storm. And so God, as he so often does, he, uh, he ramps things up just a little bit. He sends a large fish that, that swallows Jonah. And yes, we really do believe that here. We believe that Jonah is a historical account that really happened because Jesus believed this story. He taught it as history, and so we do too. We believe it for that reason and for other reasons. You can go back to Jonah, uh, the first message series, and listen to that if you're curious about the reasons why we believe that. So Jonah's in the belly of this great fish for three days and three nights, and something amazing happens to Jonah during that time. He, he repents. He begins to turn back to God in his heart. As we saw last week, his heart is now filled with joy and thankfulness as he realizes that God's grace in his life is really all that he needs. Whether he lives or dies, it really matters not to Jonah now. He's understood that he has God, and in that, he has enough. And so last week, we just saw this, this beautiful picture of the gospel beginning to, to sink into Jonah's life as he began to grasp God's grace and love toward him. And then God tells the fish to vomit Jonah on the shore. And so that's where we find Jonah this morning, probably sitting there. You can almost just imagine him kind of squinting in the daylight. You know, he's been in the dark of this this fish for several days now, just trying to get his bearings. And he's sitting in this, probably this pile of putrid, nasty fish, puke soup, nastiness stuff all over him, right? So I want to give you a good visual imagery. You hungry for lunch yet? <laughs> so he's sitting there in this mess, just as a reminder of where his sin had taken him. And that's where we pick up in the narrative this morning. Jonah chapter 3, hope you're there. Verse 1 it says, Then the word of the Lord 
came to Jonah second time. Remember, he came to Jonah the first time in chapter 1, said, hey, go to the Ninevites. Jonah runs. Now God comes back, and for the second time, he says, Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so God goes to Jonah for the second time now, and he says, hey, Jonah, I want you to get up, clean yourself off. I want you to go to Nineveh. And right off the bat, we see something that I think is just hugely important about who God is, about what his character is like. And it's this fundamental truth that our God is the God of second chances. Our God is the God of second chances. Man, aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful that God doesn't just give up on us when we mess up in our lives? So grateful that God doesn't just give me what I deserve. He comes after us again and again and again. God is a God of second chances. He's a compassionate God. You know, practically what that means for some of you who maybe are in the room this morning and you're wondering, man, have I, have I done too much? Have I gone too far? Do I have too much hidden sin in my life? Maybe I'm just too dirty. Maybe I'm just too messed up. For God to love and to pursue, the answer to that question is a resounding no. No, you're not. God's grace is, grace is deeper than all of your sin. And I was thinking about this concept this week. My, my mind was kind of drawn to so many different stories in the scriptures. And I thought about Moses in the Old Testament. Think about the story of Moses. You have this Hebrew baby who is rescued. He's raised in Pharaoh's palace. He's a man of great power. He becomes a man, and then he kills an Egyptian. He tries to cover up his sin. He buries his body in the sand. He's outed for this murder, and the Pharaoh orders his death. And so Moses goes on the run. He goes out into the wilderness. He spends 40 years in the desert on the run. And surely, during those four decades, Moses thought, man, surely God is finished with me. How could God ever forgive me for taking another man's life? And when it's time for God to lead his people out of slavery, who does he look to? He turns to Moses. Moses, the murderer. Moses, the coward. Moses, the man who is afraid to speak in public. That's God's man. That's who he chooses. And he uses Moses to deliver an entire nation and to reshape the course of human history. Think about Peter, Peter in the New Testament, one of Jesus' closest disciples. And Peter would say to Jesus, Jesus, I will never leave you. Jesus, I'll never abandon you. They'll have to kill me to get to you. And then on the night before his crucifixion, when Jesus is on trial, Peter denies him three times. And yet Jesus chooses Peter, the coward, the denier, to build his church. Peter became one of the pillars of the early church movement as we read about in Acts last year. He was the rock. We could talk about Paul, the apostle Paul. We could talk about so many stories. God delights in second chances. And so if you're running this morning, if you think that God is done with you, if you think that you've gone too far, if you think that you're too messed up, that you're too dirty, I want you to think again. 
God is the God of second chances. As one commentator wrote this week, God is not just the God of second chances. He's the God of the 999th chance. He's a compassionate God. He's full of grace, full of mercy. Let's pick up in verse 3. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Just this monstrosity of a city. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And so this time, unlike the first time, Jonah obeys God. He's learning. He's growing in his faith and his trust in God. He's also probably a little bit weary of big storms and giant fish at this point. That probably contributed to his obedience. And so Jonah likely has to travel between three and 400 miles from where he's vomited out to the city of Nineveh. So it wasn't easy for Jonah to obey God. It was actually really hard. It actually would have been really time-consuming, would have been really inconvenient. And so how, how, did Jonah, how did Jonah go from saying to God in chapter 1, No, God, I'm not going to the Ninevites. I would rather, I would rather die than to go to those vile, disgusting people. How does Jonah go from that in chapter 1 to immediate obedience in chapter 3? What changes inside of Jonah to elicit that type of response? Because his circumstances haven't changed all that much. Everything pretty much still stinks in his life right now. I'll tell you what I think changed in Jonah. I think Jonah experienced God's grace in the belly of that great fish. And that's our second take-home truth this morning. Grace changes everything. Grace changes everything. When we, when we really experience God's grace through Jesus, it begins to, to change us in a fundamental way at the core of who we are. And Jonah has experienced this now. I can remember as a, as a teenager, uh, my first car was the car that my grandmother gave me, and it was horrible. It was a 1982 Buick Regal. It was as long as a school bus. It was like driving a couch on wheels, and it was just, frankly, it was embarrassing. And so as soon as I got a job at age 16 and I got enough money for a down payment, I went out and bought a sports car. And I drove that sports car for a few years, and then in college, I bought a different car. I bought an older a BMW 325i. The straight six small block. And it was, it was fast. It was fun to drive. And when Cheryl and I, my wife, met in college, she was driving a little sporty uh, Acura Integra two-door. And so we, we had these cool kind of fast sports cars. And I remember thinking in my teens and early 20s, I, I remember thinking like the, the, the height of dorkiness is driving a minivan. Like anybody who drives a minivan is such a complete dork. I will, I will never drive a minivan. And then we had three kids. <laughs> and we drive a minivan now. And here's my dirty little confession. I like driving the minivan. Like, I'm not even ashamed. I just, I just own it. I, lo I love driving the, the minivan. It's got plenty of room. I like it. Uh, Cheryl likes driving it now. Now, what changed? Minivans didn't all of a sudden get cool, did they? Right? <laughs> They're not. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Half of you are thinking, you're a dork for driving a minivan. All right? Minivans didn't change, right? I changed. 
And this is what's happening in Jonah's life. Grace finally sunk into Jonah's hard heart, and it changed him. And he went out and bought a minivan after that and drove around Nineveh. (laughs) No, that grace, that grace and that transformation that Jonah experienced in his life 2,700 years ago is the same transformation and grace that each and every one of us need to experience today in our lives. And so Jonah finally gets to Nineveh. After God only knows how long, you could imagine how long it would take you to, to walk or ride a horse or a camel or something, 300, 400 miles. And Jonah arrives at this massive, sprawling city, Nineveh, the biggest, baddest, bloodiest, most feared city on the planet. Now, what must that have been like for Jonah? Just put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Walking up to the city, and historians tell us, had 100-foot-high walls all around the city. Those walls were so wide that three chariots could ride side by side simultaneously on top of the walls. Would have had thousands of 200-foot towers that towered above the 100-foot wall. Perhaps they would have had some soldiers, enemy soldiers, impaled right outside of the wall, as was their custom, just to kind of scare the mess out of everybody. What must that have been like for Jonah walking up to that? I can remember after Cheryl and I uh, first got married, we went to, went to Asia. We moved to a Muslim country to be missionaries for a couple of years. And um, I was still a student in, in seminary at the time. And so I had to, I literally had to smuggle all my school books uh, with me into the country. So I had like all my books wrapped up inside my pants at the bottom of the suitcase, hoping that they wouldn't find them. So I have all these books like how to, how to share the gospel with people, how to lead Muslims to Christ, like all, all these things. And I knew like if they found these things, I would be in trouble, right? Like so they would take me into the interrogation room. And the reality is at worst, I probably would have spent a couple of days in a holding cell, and they probably would have kicked us out of the country. They just would have sent us back. And so certainly I didn't have as much at stake as Jonah did walking up to Nineveh. But I can remember going through customs, just that feeling of, like, anxiety. Like, if they figure out who I am and why I'm here, this isn't going to end well for me. I just think, whatever I felt in that moment all those years ago, that was probably like one one one-millionth of what Jonah must have experienced walking up to the gates of great Nineveh. And yet, grace has transformed him. He's got to go in. And so Jonah walks right into the heart of the city, and he begins to preach. And it's this incredibly short message. In fact, it was only five Hebrew words. And basically what Jonah said in five words is this. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Because of your evil, judgment is coming for you. That was it. Like you read this, and I'm thinking, like, this is the worst sermon ever. <laughs> Just imagine if I came up here and said, God's judgment is coming on you. Let's pray. <laughs> that, was, that was his message. Every preaching professor at every seminary in the world would have given Jonah a big fat F for that sermon. Right? You contrast that message with some of the sermons that we studied last year from Peter and Paul and Stephen. And uh, this message is a, is a joke. Like, this is weak sauce, right? And how could, this, how could this message have any effect at all? And not only was it not a clever message, it was a message of judgment. <laughs> it's a message of judgment. You see, as much as we love to talk about how God is a good God, and He is a good God, we just sang about that. 
As much as we love to talk about how God is full of love and grace and mercy, and he is full of all of those things, but because he is a perfect and holy and righteous God, he is also a God of justice. You see, sometimes we have to understand the bad news before the good news even makes any sense to us. The people of Nineveh needed to understand what we need to understand, and that is that we are all separated from God because of our sin and our rebellion. Every single one of us, we're separated from God because of our sin, because of my sin. And what we deserve is his justice and his justice alone, but we all desperately need his grace. And we find that in Jesus. If you study the Old Testament, implied in any message of judgment, so like if we had any of the old prophets that would go to kings and nations and they would preach these messages of coming judgment, Always implied in those messages was the availability of mercy. If you repent, if you turn, if you turn to me, I will will heal you. I'll heal your land. That was always the message from God. And you'd sort of think, at this point, the Ninevites would probably just string Jonah up and kill him. Right? I mean, after all, that's what they were best at, torturing and killing people. You just think, man, Jonah's, Jonah's toast. They're just going to kill him right, right here in the middle of Nineveh. Let's see what happens. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Seven of the most shocking words in history. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They repent. This is shocking. This is astounding. The Ninevites, these these fierce, bloodthirsty people are so serious about this that they actually begin to fast. They put on sackcloth, which in their culture was a symbol of intense mourning and repentance. So they put on this awful, uncomfortable clothing that was usually made out of goat hair. So it would have been itchy and pokey and nasty. And they put that on. And they stop eating and they stop drinking. They're so wrecked by this message, by this word from God. Here's why I think that simple message from Jonah was so effective. I think it was effective because Jonah took God's words and he simply preached them. That leads us to this next incredible kind of take home in Jonah 3. And that is this. There is power in God's word. There's power in God's word. The book of Hebrews says that God's word is it's living, it's, it's, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it penetrates the human soul and heart. It's effective, it's powerful. And there are a great many churches where you can go every week, week after week, and you can listen to great, inspiring, self-help messages. And some dude's opinions and jokes. But by by God's grace, you will never come to new life and not have God's word read, sung, prayed, and preached. Listen, church, we got nothing else to offer you. But it's in these ancient words that we find life. There's power in God's word. One more thing that we need to see here, and it's this truth. Obedience will unleash God's power in your life. Listen, guys, you understand this. This will revolutionize your life. 
Obedience will unleash God's power in your life. Look, there was nothing impressive about Jonah's message. Nothing at all. By human standards, it was, it was horrible. But he was obedient, and an entire nation fell on their faces before God. And look, I'm learning this truth in, in my life right now, and it's been a hard truth for me to learn. God doesn't need you to be a superhero. God doesn't need you to be a superhero. He wants you to be available and obedient. That's it. It's not our job to save anybody. Only God can transform the human heart. It's our job to simply love people and point them to their hope in Jesus. That's our win. God does the saving, and that removes such a burden from our shoulders. All I've got to do is love people and tell them about Jesus. I don't have to save anybody. That's his job. I can remember as a, as a younger man, I was working somewhere, and one of my coworker, coworkers was a, a lady from, uh, from Iran. And so I remember over the course of six or eight months, we worked together, and I had the opportunity to share the gospel with her uh, over the course of, of months. And so we had a lot of deep spiritual conversations. And I felt like I did a really great job, honestly, of sharing the gospel with her. I felt like I did it in a winsome way, you know, like I was, I was very convincing, and I was just kind of like waiting on her to like fall to her knees and, yes, Chris, tell me how to follow Jesus. And like, you know, I'd picture in my mind that it started like this, this Muslim revolution of coming to Jesus. And Billy Graham would probably call me and say, hey, man, how you doing that? And I'd write a couple of books. You know, I thought I was just doing a phenomenal job with this lady and nothing happened. <laughs> I worked with her for six or eight months and nothing happened. And I pray to God that she has found Christ, hope in Christ since then. But nothing happened. And I can remember a few years later, I was over in Asia, and I was talking to this college student, and I just presented the gospel to him, and it was, it was terrible. It was, like, it was like Jonah's message. I gave him like a, like a, like a four-year-old's version of what the gospel is. And the guy believed. <laughs> he actually believed. He follows Jesus. He turns into an evangelist. He starts leading other people to Christ in his country and other countries. From that, I just, it just kind of like dawned on me. This, this isn't about me. It's about being available and obedient. God is the one who does the saving. Obedience unleashes the power of God in our lives. We don't have to save anybody. All we have to do is love people and point them to Jesus. That's our job. Pick it up in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed on drink or, or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king of Nineveh, the most powerful, bloodiest man possibly in the entire world, removes his royal robe, steps down from his throne, puts on sackcloth, and he goes and he sits in ashes. And as he sits in those ashes, repenting for his sin, he sends an edict out to all of Nineveh. 
And he goes, look, everybody stop eating and drinking right now. Everybody go put sackcloth on as an outward symbol that your heart is broken before Jonah's God. Even the livestock, even that, that goat over there, go put sackcloth on him too. He doesn't eat, he doesn't drink either. Second, I want everybody to pray. I want everybody to call out mightily to Jonah's God. And then thirdly, he says, I want everybody to repent. I want everybody to turn away from their evil ways. This pagan king who's responsible for the murder of tens of thousands of people, he's saying, people, repent and believe in this God. Call out to him, fast, pray. And maybe Jonah's God, maybe Jonah's God will have mercy on us. Now this is, this is astonishing in so many different ways. This would be like, imagine, imagine if God called you in World War II to go to Nazi Germany. God said, hey, listen, I want you to go to Berlin. I want you to go right up to Adolf Hitler's palace. I want you to knock on the door and tell him to repent or I'm going to destroy him. How many of you would go? <laughs> Not many of us, but imagine that you did. Imagine that you went and you walked right down to the heart of Berlin. You got past the SS guards and you knocked on Adolf's door. And he comes to the door and you said, Adolf, God tells you to repent, to turn from your evil ways and to follow him, find hope in him. And just imagine that Hitler does. Hitler not only repents of his sin, but he tells all of Nazi Germany to repent as well. How shocking would that be? That's exactly what's happening right now in Nineveh. This is amazing. Now watch this, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they repented, they turned from their sin, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And from that, I want to say this to you. Everybody needs to repent and turn to God. Nobody is born a Christian. I hear that a lot as I talk to people and we having a conversation. I ask them about their story and they'll say something like, oh, I've always been a Christian. I was born in church, raised in church. If we have that conversation and that's your story, I'm going I'm to press back a little bit on that when you tell me that because I, because I love you. I want you to understand you were not born a Christian. I was not born in a right relationship with God. I did not inherit my parents' faith. I am not in God's kingdom because I grew up in church my whole life, and neither are you. Like the Ninevites, we are all sinners. We're rebels. And we either repent and we turn to God to find grace through Jesus, or we will remain separated from him forever in a place that the Bible calls hell. From this incredible story, I want to press into a couple more truths before we wrap it up. The first one is this. God loves the people that you hate. God loves the people that you hate. From Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to Revelation, the last book in the Bible, we see this grand narrative of God's story. That he's all about, all about this relentless rescue mission to pursue people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You see, Jonah had become self-righteous, and his thought at the time would have been, look, I'm better than they are. 
I deserve God's mercy. I deserve his grace. They don't. They're evil. They're vile. They're disgusting. They're wicked. And I think the trap that Jonah fell into is a trap that we have to be very, very careful of ourselves. I think it's a danger for all of us, maybe especially in the church. Because it's, it's a subtle drift, right? God saves us at some point in time. Where maybe we're a child or we're in college or later in life. And over time, we're not, if we're not careful, we begin to develop this us versus them complex. Right? It's us in this room, those of us who deserve God's mercy, and them, all of them out there that don't deserve God's mercy and grace. As if we're any better than anybody. As if we've done anything to earn our own salvation. It's not us versus them out there. We are all Ninevites at heart. We all need God's grace and his mercy that he provided for us when he sent Jesus into our mess to live a perfect life on our behalf, to die on a cross to pay the penalty of our sin, and then rising again three days later to give us life in this world and in eternity. And this good news isn't an us versus them thing. It's not the worthy versus the unworthy This is good news for all of us who stand condemned apart from the gospel of Jesus, and that is every single one of us. So if you have hatred in your heart for someone this morning, I just want to caution caution you, tread carefully, friend. If you have hatred in your heart, maybe like Jonah, for an entire people group or nation, tread cautiously, friend. God loves the people that you hate. And he is on a rescue mission. His purpose is to reconcile people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. One more thing I want to dial into before we wrap it up this morning as we look at the story of Jonah's life. And this is our last truth. Salvation leads to mission. Salvation always leads to mission. See, God spared Jonah's life in the storm. He spared Jonah's life in the belly of that great fish, not so that Jonah could go back to his comfortable home in Israel and live the safest, most self-centered life possible. He delivered Jonah so that he would go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. He sent Jonah on mission. So don't, don't miss that central key part of this story in the middle of all the action of storms and fish and evil people repenting and finding God, salvation always leads to mission. Think about the words of Jesus in Matthew 28. That's the passage that we call the Great Commission. What did Jesus tell his disciples to do right before he ascended back to heaven? What did he tell them to do? He said, go. Go into the whole world and make disciples. What did he tell Jonah to do? Twice. Jonah, go. Go to the Ninevites. The call is the same today as it's always been for God's people. And here's the deal. God isn't going to call most of us to go to Nineveh. He will call some of you, undoubtedly, to go to faraway places. And when that happens, we will rejoice. We'll celebrate. We'll support you. We'll give you money. We'll do whatever we can to get you on the field. But the reality is that for most of us, we're called to live out our lives on mission right here in Asheville. 
And so if you're, if you're a teacher, if you're a school teacher, be the best teacher in the city. If you're a firefighter, be the best firefighter in this entire county. And then leverage your influence, leverage your relationships to love people well and then to point them to Jesus. I want you to understand your job matters. What you do matters in God's kingdom. So let me just encourage you, wake up every single day with a sense of purpose. Because as soon as you start to understand this truth, I think once you start to understand this, it will absolutely revolutionize your life. Once you start to understand that your job is ultimately not about a paycheck. Where you go to work is not ultimately about a paycheck. Your job isn't just about surviving until Friday so you can have some fun. Your job ultimately is mission. Your job is about people. It's about Jesus. Christian, you are sent on mission right where you're at. And if every single one of us could begin to see our our jobs, our lives, our relationships as a part of something much, much greater than just the grind of everyday life, I really believe that God can and will absolutely reshape this city through his people. He can do it. And I believe that's what he wants to do. But it's going to take every single one of us, like Jonah, beginning to leverage our lives, our talents, our skills, our resources to advance God's kingdom. As we close this morning, I, I kind of want to lay before you a couple of questions for you to consider. Just in light of what we've talked about, God's word in Jonah chapter 3. For those of you who are in the room, maybe, and you, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus yet. Like Jonah, like the Ninevites, we're all deserving of God's perfect and righteous judgment. We are. We've earned it. That's what we deserve. That's what I deserve. But I want you to know this morning that you don't have to experience God's wrath. You don't have to die for your sins. Jesus did all of that for you. And all you have to do is what the Ninevites did 2,700 years ago, and that's repent. Turn from your sins, your idols, and believe in Jesus. Give your life to him. Embrace his grace for you. And begin to experience the new life that he has for you, one with purpose, one with hope, one with love. If you've never done that, let today be the day that that changes. When we pray in just a minute, I'm just gonna encourage you in the silence of your own heart and mind to cry out to God in your own words and give your life to him. Just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. At heart, I'm just like the Ninevites. I deserve your wrath. I deserve your judgment. But today I want to receive your grace through Jesus. And I want to follow you. And live on mission just like Jonah for the rest of my life with you. That's where you're at. You pray that prayer in your own words in just a minute. God's going to hear your heart. And if you pray that prayer, I want to encourage you to come talk to me. Come talk to another leader so that we can help celebrate that decision with you. For the rest of you in the room, here's your question. Who are your Ninevites? Who are your Ninevites? Who are you not loving like God loves? 
Are you harboring hatred in your heart like Jonah was for somebody or for a group of somebodies? Who are you not going to that you know God wants you to go to them? Is it a relative? Is it a friend? Is it a neighbor? Is it somebody that wounded you a long time ago? Maybe it's an individual. Maybe it's like Jonah. Maybe it's a whole group of people. But believer, I want you to understand that God created us to join him in his pursuit of people who are far from him. So will you do that? Will you commit yourself to that this morning? Will you ask God, God, what do you want me to do? God, who do you want me to take this good news about Jesus to? Who do you want me to take this this good news about your hope and your grace to? And then when God makes that clear in your heart and your mind, will you be obedient to that? Just like Jonah was finally obedient to go to the Ninevites, will you be obedient to do what God tells you to do? Let's pray. God, would you help us now in the places that we can't help ourselves? Father, where we're blind, will you help us see? We're deaf, will you help us hear? For those of us who are dead inside this morning, God, would you give us new life through your son, Jesus? Father, help us not to miss it. Help us not to get just caught up in the grind of everyday life, only to wake up one day at the end of our lives and realize that we missed the whole thing. That we missed the most important thing, and that is to know you and to make you known. So, Father, we love you. We pray all of these things in your beautiful name. In the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.